Welcome to Culture Radar, Australia's leading smart safety culture platform. Do you want to transform your safety culture from your Achilles heel into your competitive edge? Stay tuned to find out how, as Dr. Gary Marling shines a light on important safety issues as he interviews globally recognised safety experts and talks about why an appropriate safety culture is vital to you and your organisation. Are you putting your people at the centre of safety? Find out now. I'll kick off by, uh, by introducing, introducing uh, Sarah Pazell from Viva Health and uh, at, at Work. And um, Sarah and I have had a, uh, a fairly long association through both of us studying at the University of Queensland. Um, so, Sarah, the first thing I normally ask anyone who partakes in our Coffee and Culture series is uh, to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Viva Health at Work. Sure. Thanks, Gary. Yes, so I'm the Managing Director at Viva Health at Work. I am a human-centred designer, and that uh, has people quizzically look at me sometimes in response to that. But I look at design as it affects human performance, as it optimises performance for humans. So it can be really, really diverse. I find it exciting to work across all industries, mining, construction, transportation, healthcare, manufacturing, architecture, and design. Uh, and I'm always looking for ways that design can just optimize how humans think, work, behave, perform, and engage in the workplace. Wow, that's a, that's a big brief, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but there is a little bit of job security because a lot of the times, Gary, engineers or traditional designers would be looking at the actual equipment or the environment that they're designing for sustainability, for durability, for longevity, or for the fit for purpose. You know, a asphalt paper has to lay asphalt. But we often forget about the operators and the maintainers of that equipment or that environmental space and how users engage with that. And that's the window of opportunity for my work. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important part of it, Sarah, looking at that full life cycle and, and taking it right down to the operator level as well. What you've told me there, though, is a, is a really nice segue into um, what, did I, what I wanted to explore with you next, the... Um, uh, I know enough about um, um, uh, human factors to be dangerous, but uh, <laughs> I've always wondered uh, what's the difference between the uh, um, the physical, the neurocognitive, and um, and organisational human factors, or, or some people call it ergonomics. I know, I know there's, a, um, there's a there's a whole different philosophy between the use of those two words, human factors and ergonomics. So. If you could explain a little bit about that in terms of that physical, neurocognitive and organisational point of view, that would be great. Thanks, Sarah. Sure. Ergonomics and human factors offer very holistic approaches to understand people at work and how they perform tasks. It involves systems analysis to, to view people, their capabilities and motivators, uh, the design of the environment, equipment and tools with which people interact, social interactions, the way teams are formed and led and the leadership systems generally, how organizations function, how they work with their supply chains, what are the productivity drivers and how do they remain sustainable. So it's underpinned by complete system sciences to understand models of people, environment, occupation and performance. 
Um, they speak of three primary interacting domains in the field of ergonomics and human factories, and this is also available with the uh, International Ergonomics Association on their website for more information. But generally, the three domains that never work in isolation, they're always interacting, but it is easier to think in chunks, so we'll discuss this in chunks. So physical ergonomics refers to applied science about kinesiology, physiology, anthropometrics, or how the body can be measured in its segments and its whole, kinematics or functional movement patterns, and how we engage in our manual tasks, the things we do every day, uh, our tissue or our physical and activity threshold tolerances to that work, how we cope with the tasks that we have before us, and how that might differ among different people, such as men versus women or people of a different stature. Uh, what are the risks for acute and cumulative injury and what conditions help us perform better and actually become physically conditioned and improved through our work. And some ergonomists might study something minute like the different hand grasp postures to uh, handle tools and the design of those tools or one sitting postures that are optimum uh, for kinem kinematics movement patterns and the reaches to help you uh, engage in a vehicle cab layout or the chair design, for example, in an office setting. Neurocognitive ergonomics, however, is the study of brain and behavior at work. And of course, there's an effect on our physical capabilities with the way we think too. But the context of human cognition or effective thinking processes are concerned here, like memory, logistics, our executive higher order functioning of thinking and our planning, uh, how we integrate senses, sensory integration processing, and our threshold to tolerate all these senses. That's how we see, hear, touch, and move, for example. It is metacognition or thinking about thinking, literally. And specialists may study brain functioning under different work or activity conditions. They may study perception, cognition, emotion, uh, even aspects of spatial navigation and wayfinding, which is a specialty in design. Um, neurocognitive ergonomists may specialize in the effects of work duration, the type of work and the relationships that can affect an experience of stress or energy management our sleep and wake cycles and the risk behaviors that arise in workplaces. Uh, visual ergonomics might be of interest in this space too, how we relate to our visual world and what are the requirements for good performance. Um, human factors and competency training, learning design come into focus in this domain. Uh, topics about technology enhancement. This is huge in this arena. Um, aspects such as immersive technology, virtual reality, modeling, simulation, augmentative reality, spatial collaboration, or the new trend of using digital twins for planning and risk management, haptics, touch technology, and the way we think, robotics, artificial intelligence, or human-computer interaction. So you can see it's really incredibly broad when we start to bring the mind into the picture. And then when we think about organizational ergonomics, it's a blend of all, uh, looking at the system of work in which issues might arise for teams, uh, for leaders and in entire organizations, the way they collaborate, the way co-design is performed. So the term you might hear is participatory ergonomics. What's the workflow like? Uh, scheduling, timetabling, quality management, training practices. 
Again, aspects of modeling and discrete simulation might come up to look at and test patterns of work efficiency. Uh, you may be looking at resource management and communication uh, where technology enhancement comes into play, such as spatial collaboration when there's narration and annotation and closed hub communication centers, all very trendy right now. Uh, there's aspects of organizational justice with the roles and responsibilities that help advance the programs that we operate in the business. So everything from the governments through to the implementation of a program, the workplace culture and climate, which I know is your specialty too, Gary. This comes into play here. That's great. Thanks, Sarah. I really like how you sort of blended the theory of that with some uh, uh, discussion around the practical application of it as well. Um, and, and so we continue on that sort of uh, looking at the practical aspects of the issues you've spoken about. Um, normally with our series that, uh, that we do here, we, we generally talk face-to-face -face and, um, and we video record it. We're actually doing this uh, uh, through a video uh, chat at the moment um, because of COVID-19. That sort of leads me yes. to my question is, uh, what are some of the human factors or ergonomic issues that people should consider while working at home through this pandemic? Yeah, great question. Uh, so, so prevalent, relevant right now. And all of those aspects that we discussed, all domains of ergonomics and human factors come into play, the physical, neurocognitive and organizational concerns. We, we, for workers at home, just like in the workplace, we need to protect and promote health. And so for an individual, they have to determine the workspace that's going to fit their task and personal needs and what's their tolerance and threshold for all the sensory stimuli in their home environment now. How is this addressed? Uh, do they work best in quiet conditions? Uh, do they require more collaboration? Do they thrive under those conditions? And if so, how is that being enhanced? Uh, everything from do they, they work well with bright light or do they need low light and natural lighting? Do they need to move frequently? Uh, some people really respond best to activity and movement before their cognitive tests to aid their concentration. So with whom are they working in the home environment? How's this being shared in this space and how's that now being managed? You know, particularly we recently had a lot of homeschooling activity happening in collaboration with our own uh, work practices. Uh, Timetabling may have more freedom but how do some people respond to the lack of structure? Does technology actually enhance or hinder that work for collaboration? What are the cognitive demands of that work? Now, there was a lot of concern and still is concern about social connection facilitated through technology versus the isolation that was experienced and the potential for any mental health, ill, Ill health risks. So how's that being promoted? Uh, and then now I'm working with a lot of clients who are concerned about this organizational system of graduated return to work and the ongoing need for flexible work arrangements and what the policies do to support that, what the day in the life of a worker actually looks like for their transport, their sense of security during that transport to and from work, and then the actual cohabitation in um, a workplace where there may be several businesses that lease from a single building and how are all the businesses working together to make sure there's a sense of security during pandemic management times. Um, I was called out to investigate a student who had a sensory profile disturbance and they were had to do their study from home, a high school student. I was asked to investigate how, how they could remain proficient in that home environment 
And what we found out was that some of those routines had obviously changed now working at home and the aspect of the tasks, that's the fundamental thing we do. We start with a task analysis, a day in the life of and understand what's required. And this, this student was no longer doing their morning routines and fresh outdoor activity, the walking and the carrying the backpack to school, which allowed her to have some movement and proprioception or feedback through her joints before she had to sit down and concentrate. So with that lost, and that was her need, uh, she was less able to concentrate well. And so we talked about bringing back and establishing those routines, even if it's around the home environment. Some sense of routine and order used to exist for each class in the high school environment. Uh, it was sequenced and well segmented, but then suddenly she was receiving emails from all types of teachers of all subjects randomly at any time, day and night. So we had to help her just simply use her basic Outlook folders to file content and then have a schedule for this person to go back into those similar routines of when she would engage with what type of material um, to implement frequent breaks and movement between what would otherwise be normal classes and then to also help prescribe exercises that stimulated her vestibular system even things like spinning around on a kitchen stool uh, helped settle her uh, where it gave her a sense of acceleration and deceleration with that movement pattern so it really looks at you know what an individual needs, but what's the design of that work environment? What's that space like? And how are you going to still allow people some sense of routine? Because we know that work can actually be um, rehabilitating as well as conditioning. Yeah, so if organizations now become more sensitive to design for diversity, now that they're learning that there's all of these different ways in the changing world of work, that could be accommodated. This is such an opportunity because it's how they can enact their inclusivity policies. If their job and work design can fulfill needs for creative, independent ways of approaching a task, then we have some, some great opportunities before us. And I think that's what's coming to the surface, Gary, is people are realizing that, hang on, we're actually learning from this. We used to have some flexible work arrangements sort of on paper, lip service, but they weren't always really well enacted. And now's the chance. People are now saying, hang on, this mixed way of working is actually better for me and my family. Yeah, that, that's fascinating, Sarah. I can see why you're excited about the sort of work you do. That one of the key takeaways from me, for me, from what you just discussed there, I've always been aware of it, it's always been difficult to put into practice, is that uh, um, in managing these issues, it's very much um, looking at an individual level rather than one, one, um, one size fits all. And I've seen exactly. a lot of literature um, recently, all of a sudden everyone's become an expert on managing uh, the pandemic. And from a safety point of view, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of literature where it's a sort of one size fits all. But uh, what you've discussed there really brings home the fact that you need to look at it at an individual level as well. Yeah, and then design for individuals to have some autonomy in that decision-making and their approach to work so that they can be creative, so that, you know, they have that uh, excitement about how they approach work. They're almost co-designers. They're architects of superior work design, and you give them that choice. So as long as you can give them some freedom, then they'll probably have the best engagement, best productivity. Yeah. So obviously, uh, welfare of your clients is, is a key business focus for you. Um, and I'm just wondering in terms of um, how, that, uh, how that relates to um, a safety culture that can be built in the work environment. 
Um, do you think it's important to to measure an organization's safety culture? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Gary. I, mean, I, I would extend that because of my world of work about um, design culture, you know, how creative and innovative an organization is as well. So safety and design. Uh, and so if I go back to some, some basics, uh, the culture is basically a system of shared assumptions. What are the values and beliefs that sort of govern behavior in an organization? Whereas climate is almost like a snapshot capture in moment in time is what the mood of the organization is that reflects that culture and when I did my thesis I was looking at whether organizations were enterprising whether they were uh, frequently engaging in co-design to inspire workers and to have the best possible outcomes and productivity as well as uh, health and safety and what we found was a little capability model now we used a linear capability model because it's simply easier to define and paper, but I understand that that's not representative of complexity in a real scenario, which is a little bit more like a spider web or something. But just just for easy categories, we talked about organizations that were either at the top tier, incredibly enterprising and resilient, where they had a very strong design culture and change readiness, and they had a lot of pioneering prowess and design capability, and that includes safety considerations. Or were they taking on projects quite randomly? Uh, were they complacent and they just had perceived sufficiency uh, with just, we'll just keep doing as we do unless a regulator makes us change? Or were they really re resistant and had some impenetrable mindsets? And so by understanding this, you have more likelihood as to work out how the most successful ways to advance a project or a program. But what we did find was that every single ergonomics project had some degree of success. It was just that when an ergonomics project was adopted within an organization that was enterprising and or resilient, it had six times the level of success in terms of health promotion and protection outcomes. So projects that were occurred within a well-led, capable design program are far more likely to achieve significant success. And those determinants were things like uh, levels of business improvement, productivity, and health. And the program, the capability of an organization to host this was best determined by leadership investment. There were companies who did a lot of cost-benefit analysis and return on investment on their work, so they were analytical and evaluating. They evaluated health improvement outcomes, not just safety or risk reduction, but I love this, health improvement outcomes. And they were very keen to really understand what a day in the life of their worker was. So they had task-based uh, library work of work descriptions so the contrast would be an organization that has a very diluted hazard register that's not contextualized to the tasks that occur and don't understand the frequency of those tasks, the seasonality of those tasks that are performed, and really what's, what they're asking of their workers to do day in and day out with physical or cognitive demands and opportunities to condition that workforce. So again, I'll just, I'll just recap. Enterprising, resilient organizations what I think you might phrase in your term as those with the most prime and positive workplace culture were more likely to have significant success with health improvement outcomes with any ergonomics project that they adopted. Yeah, that uh, ties in uh, beautifully with uh, 
where we're trying to take our client base at the moment is to being uh, in what we call the HRO space or the uh, high reliability organisations. And a lot of the factors that you just mentioned there dovetailing uh, very well with it and, and working participatively uh, with those clients to help them make sense of the, of the risks that they have to manage as well. Excellent. Thanks for that, Sarah. Look, um, in terms of wrapping up, tell us what you see in terms of Oh, have you got any exciting projects on, on, the, on the horizon um, that you want to discuss or what do you see in the future for, for safety in terms of the work you do? That gives oh, you scope wow. to go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a great question. So um, I'll start first with the what I find the easy one, the, some of the fun projects that we've got uh, on the horizon, the immediate horizon. And I, what I love about our work is it's so diverse. So we're working on some post-occupancy fit outs uh, with some clients, government client, and what normally would be face-to-face training, we're obviously creating more and more video captures uh, to help their employees understand how to engage with this new work environment, what uh, this looks like for their interface with their equipment. Uh, we offer, we've just been offering uh, what we call our VI Office Workstation Practitioner Program, a certification program, a technical certification program, so that uh, workers can assign team members to develop a basic level of competency to provide good advice to help people uh, engage with the office equipment. And tire handlers, this is a completely different um, tangent. So this is what I talk about. There's so many different industries that we work with. We have a research project that looks likely to uh, unfold where we investigate tire handlers, the equipment Mm -hmm. where you um, maneuver tires on and off big mobile plant and we're looking at the operators and the maintainers and all the work that they have to do and how they interface with this equipment. Uh, We're having an interesting project with uh, a banking institution where we're looking at design for crime, customer aggression and occupational violence associated with customer service roles in about six different roles and um, surprising and maybe disappointing that that's so significant in that sector, but I'm hearing it increasingly in insurance and banking sectors about uh, customer aggression and occupational violence and needing to understand the tasks that they're asking their employees and how you best design for crime or prevent this and help de-escalate that situation, everything from environmental design to the team and leadership systems. Uh, I'm also working with the well building institute international well building institute with their movement concept to help advise with what is an accreditation standard for architecture and design the new version 2.0 uh, and that's been a fun committee to, to work on to look at some of the standards to help inspire workplaces end users organizations and their designers to look at how they design to promote health in the workplace Wow. Now your other your other question. I repeat that it was about safety. Yeah. Well, um, what are the? Where do you see um, safety in the future? What's uh, what are the? What are the sort of initiatives that are coming on board now that you think are going to have an impact on how we manage safety? Mm. T- technology comes to mind first and foremost when you ask that question, Gary, because uh, I'm working with a. a technology 
an innovation hub, the development of a hub for Queensland, just helping to advise. And we recently discussed all the realm of different technology that will affect safety and performance. And it's everything from the modeling, the simulation, the virtual reality, augmentative reality, um, haptics, uh, the robotics, uh, the AI, you know, uh, all of the considerations that suddenly we need to have this incredible savvy, even digital twins for workplace planning, when they're looking at mining and construction design, how they look at managing risks without people putting people out into that workspace first and kind of create different simulation models. So I think safety has to become so incredibly integrated in operations, not not separate. It has to be incredibly integral. Everything from technology and the awareness about what technology can, can bring to the business, but also how to create an understanding that Australia is pioneering in these aspects. In other words, they can be exporters to the world because of their good performance in this country. And I think that's often not championed that well, that our safety performance and our methods of approach are really phenomenal. Uh, the other aspect then is the workplace culture aspect of people embracing the talent that can come from safety professionals, the safety scientists, so that they can embrace that and embed it into operational systems as, as this is just the way business is done uh, and not seeing it as a separate function. So I think it'll be really interesting that you have to have specialty skills, but then be well integrated in operations and not seem to be divisive or segregated from all of the activity. Uh, I, I continually found, that's why I use the term design, that safety professionals can and should uh, embark on the opportunity to think about how what they do in one realm affects so many other business units, so integrating their work. And that helps embed them in an organization. I'll give you a really, really basic example. If you look at simply a, a manual task that is improved through design, whether something becomes more lightweight, more maneuverable, um, more variable in height to suit lots of people, uh, and it reduces risk for either an acute injury or accumulative injury and over time insidious injury, instead of simply framing it and defining it and creating the paperwork around it as a risk reduction in the business, we have to do more than that. We have to look at, right, sure, did it reduce the risk for fatality, disablement, severe injury, uh, long-term occupational injury, uh, discomfort, but then move on from that and say, okay, did we actually engage workers? Was there some sort of social inclusion through the process of this project? Did we engage other business units and help with business unit integration? Did we look at a cost benefit or return on investment? Usually there always is some benefit with some of these other changes that occur in safety, and are we championing those results? Um, did we look at whether or not we had supply chain integration? Did we promote what, we, what we've achieved through industry uh, or cross-industry? Have we created something that allowed for sustainability either in business or the environment? What else have we done all throughout the entire organization where we can embrace this? And maybe the change simply meant we designed for diversity so workforce strategy can get on board and and count this as one of their wins in their own um, key performance indicators that we've changed the task so that uh, more women can 
approach the task, not just men in our business. So we, we've achieved multiple functions with one single objective. And I think that helps embed safety scientists, safety professionals, coordinators, and advisors uh, as an essential critical element and service within the rest of the organization. Well, that's a, uh, uh, a very extensive answer to, to that question and includes <laughs> some great gems in there, Sarah. In fact, we're uh, uh, currently running a, a very short pulse survey um, to our client base and our colleagues as well, asking that particular question. So I'm going to be interested to see uh, what comes back from that and we'll be reporting that. But I, I do have a feeling that a lot of the issues you've talked about there um, will, will, um, uh, will come through in those results of the survey too. But, Excellent. Uh, look, um, that's, that's been fantastic, Sarah. We normally keep the, uh, the, these podcasts down to about 20 minutes, and we've covered that. Okay. And you've covered, covered some great ground, and you've certainly given a lot, a lot of points, I think, for um, safety professionals to think about in, in your space. Um, so, unfortunately, we couldn't be together face-to-face -face and enjoy coffee over it. Um, but maybe sometime in the future, we would like to touch base again. and uh, and and, and um, you know, you can let us know about the, the new thinking in terms of human factors and ergonomics. Excellent. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Gary. Okay. Thanks, Sarah.